I will bring them home again. There's very few words in the English language that evoke as much emotion and imagination as the word home. Just four simple letters. Say that word to someone whose parents abused or neglected them in their home. You say the word home and brace yourself. Say that word home to a single person who has always wanted to find a spouse and create a family, but it just never worked out. Be prepared to hear a story of dashed dreams. Say the word home right now to any one of the six million Syrian refugees who have been displaced from their homes and be ready for sobs and tears. Understandably so, amen? Let's keep praying for peace. If you say the word home, however, to someone who had a high-functioning home life, great parents, and reasonably sane siblings... And you better have some time on your hands because they're going to have some heartwarming stories. I have a friend like this, and he thinks that the way things were in his home is the way they should be in every home. You can never stop talking about it. The truth is that despite of the health of the home that you or I grew up in, we all know deep down what a home, or we all know deep down what a home could be. We all know what a home should be. Every person in this place understands the potential that lives inside the idea of that word home. God made sure of it. He printed it on our hearts. Home is where you have a deep sense of belonging and rootedness, where you're safe and protected from the world. Home is where you're supposed to be loved irrationally and accepted unconditionally, forgiven totally when wrongs are confessed, and admitted. Home is where you know for dead sure that everyone in that home is for you in every circumstance of your life. These are powerful human yearnings. They exist in all of us, no exceptions. God hardwired it that way. Uh, when I was growing up, there, there was a little advertisement for a company that could provide a little bit of a home to you if you were away from your home. Uh, it was called Motel 6, and the owner promised us that he would leave the light on for you. <laughs> home is the place where they leave the light on for you, no matter what faraway place you've wandered to. That's home. And home and Christmas go hand in hand because Christmas is a story of home. Uh, the first few years of my life, uh, me and my older brother, us two boys, we didn't have much of a home. Uh, for a little while, we were in foster care. I have no memories of Christmas until the very first Christmas. My mom and my dad tried to have kids, and after failing at it and not being able to, they decided to create a home for two little boys, two little boys that they loved. That first Christmas, my dad went crazy. He climbed up on top of the roof on Christmas Eve and rang some jingle bells. Now, don't worry, it wasn't that dangerous. It was California. It was 60 degrees. <laughs> He rang the jingle bells. I thought for sure Santa was out there. I remember I got one of my first pairs of pajamas. It had an adorable little uh, bear on there who loved to eat honey. You all know who I'm talking about? <laughs> Pooh Bear, right? And from that day on, that's still what my dad calls me. He calls me Pooh Bear. Don't you dare try, okay? All right. 
But Christmas is a story of coming home because uh, Luke starts off the story with a guy named Joseph. Uh, And Joseph was living under occupation from a governor who thought he was a big deal and decided it was time to collect money from people. So he said, everybody has to journey home to their hometown, no exceptions. And Joseph got his pregnant wife, and they headed on a journey back to his hometown. His hometown was named Bethlehem. And if you translate Bethlehem, it means house of bread. And this season we celebrate a baby who would be born in that town who would later grow up to say, I'm I'm the bread of life. If any of you are hungry for home, I can fulfill you in a way that nothing else can. I'll never forget my first uh, home away, uh, or my first Christmas away from home. Uh, I was newly enlisted in the Marine Corps, and we got word just a couple weeks before the holidays that our unit was getting shipped out, that we were heading to conflict in Somalia, and I was nervous. So on uh, close to Christmas, uh, my parents drove down and we ate ate dinner together. Uh, My dad gave me a little uh, uh, satellite radio so I could tune into the sounds of home even though I was on a whole other continent. But I'll never forget when that dinner was over, the look in my mom's eye when I turned around and walked back out. Uh, One of my favorite Christmas songs, I don't know what yours is. One of my favorites is actually an old one. I think it became popular during World War II because I think lots of moms were feeling like my mom was. It was this little song with a little promise. It said, I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, I would sing it for you, but my voice is nowhere near as good as our worship leaders or even those kiddos, right? (laughs) I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. I'll be home for Christmas, even if it's only in my dreams. We dream of home. And lots of us know what it's like to be in a home but not feel at home. We're going to come back to that. Why is the concept of home so striking for us? Why, when we say the word home, do we see the unrealized potential that's in that word and we long for it? Why is that? How is it that we got away from home? And to understand this story, all you have to do is go back to the first story in the Bible, the book of Genesis, where that story is so deeply true of the human condition. See, because home is two things. Home is a location. Location is important. Uh, And if you travel back to your hometown and you're stirred up with memories, uh, me and my family usually uh, drive back to Southern California. That's my homeland. Uh, And during our week out there, I'll usually take a day and I'll load the kids up in the car and we'll drive around my hometown and I'll retell them all my terribly boring stories about growing up. It's their least favorite day of the vacation. (laughs) So home is a location. Southern California will always be the place that I remember growing up. But you know what? No matter how many times I go back there, in one way it feels like home, but in another way it doesn't. Because home isn't just a location, home is people. And lots of those people that made my home are gone. And in fact, when I head back home to my home in Southern California, I'm not the same boy that grew up there. I'm a different man. And in the book of Genesis, we see both location and relationships. God creates human beings. Did you know the word human means dirt creature or earth creature? We were created for this. This planet is our home. But we all know what it's like to be in a location that is home, but not feel like it's home. 
And in some of the most beautiful language in the book of Genesis, it says that God would come down and walk with the human beings, with these earth creatures. So not only were they in the, were they in the location of home, they had the relationship of home. But you know what? For me, maybe for you and for them, we make this mistake that home with God isn't enough for us, is it? God creates a place where they have everything that they need, but it's not enough. They want just a little bit more. As Greg reminded us last week, he talked about this universe that we live in, the expansiveness. We can't even imagine how big it is. And the God of that giant universe that's so awesome that he spoke it into existence, that God looked at this little speck of sand called planet Earth and decided that even though we had pushed him away because we wanted a little bit more, that God was not going to give up on us. And so in the town of Bethlehem, in the city of David, was born Christ the Lord, the one who would invite us home. And in one of the most striking stories that Jesus told, a story that's familiar if you've been in Christian for, uh, Christianity for a long time or is somewhat familiar even if you haven't, he tells a story of two boys. It's in the book of Luke, chapter 15. If you brought a Bible or if you have one on your phone, you should pull it out. Uh, because it's a story, we're not going to put it on the side screens. I'm going to read out of my Bible. I hope that you brought one. Uh, if you're sitting next to someone that has one and you don't have one, it's Christmas. We can share, right? Now, to understand this story, we have to understand a little bit about the context of this story because Luke sets the scene for us in chapter 15. Here's how he starts. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. That's Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So before Jesus even gets to the story of things being lost, Luke sets the scene for us. Over here, there's basically three kinds of people. There's one kind of person over here. These folks are tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is about to tell a story about being lost. This group of people knows they're lost. They've been lost for a long time. They've been looking for home for a long time. And right here in the middle is Jesus, the bread of life. He's the one teaching and telling stories. And over here are the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of religious law. And we get three really important verbs here. Jesus is teaching. The tax collectors and sinners are gathering to him. And the teachers of religious law, what are they doing? They're muttering. To this group of people, Jesus is going to tell a story. Now, Jesus is a genius. Uh, he starts off with two um, less controversial stories. He tells the story of a shepherd who lost a sheep, goes after that sheep, brings it home. There's a big party. Everyone loves the story. Oh, this is a great story. We love that story. Then he tells the story of a woman who lost a coin. She clears out the house, finds a light, searches for the coin. When she finds it, she gathers everybody in the community. They have a big party. And then Jesus is going to turn up the heat on this story. And if you think about it, he had lots of options. He could have tried to sort of lower the expectations and challenge, try to meet in the middle and compromise. Let's everybody just get along. But that's not Jesus. He dials up the intensity. 
And he starts telling a story, a story about a lost son. So we pick it up in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man, a father, who had two boys. And what you need to know is that that father loved these two boys, loved them ever since they were little. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Unimaginable in Hebrew culture for a son to say, Dad, I don't want to wait for you to die to get my stuff. I want it now. You're keeping me from the good life, and I want it. The father has every right to be infuriated, but that's not how he responds. He divided his property between them. The word that the scripture uses there for property that Jesus uses, it's the word bios. It's the word life. The father divided his life to meet this demand from his son. Now, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. There was some time and space in between when the son asked for the inheritance and the father could give it. Why? Why couldn't the father just head down to Wells Fargo and get a cashier's check and give it to the son? Because that's not what wealth was like in Jesus' day. Wealth was land. Probably land that had been in his family for generations. In order to meet his son's demand, he has to tear his life apart. He has to sell part of this land that he's connected to that belonged to his father and his father's father. He has to sell off flocks that he's developed. He has to take his estate and break it apart in order to give some to his son. And he does it. And the son kicks out the back door with the cashier's check, convinced that life out there is better than life at home. The younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. We don't need to know where the country is. We just know that it's a long way from home. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. Let's pause here for a second. Now, in our day, if there's a severe famine in a whole country, it's a terrible thing, but we have some advantages. We have mass media that can communicate. We have world vision and Red Cross. We can let people know that there's a disaster, and certainly they're terrible, but we have some help. In this day, a famine happened in the land. There was no communication. Famine would mean starvation, trafficking of people, the breakdown of civilization. This son spends everything he has and lives through famine until he comes to the very, very end. So there's a famine in the whole country. That doesn't bring him back. He hires himself out to a citizen of that country who sends him to feed the pigs. Feeding the pigs doesn't send him home. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And then verse 17, finally he comes to his senses. I have a question. Why does he wait so long? I don't know about you, but maybe when I had a week's worth of money left, I would have abandoned the plan, <laughs> taken the little bit of change and started it at home. Why didn't he? Now, Jesus' listeners would have understood this in a way that we don't because we didn't grow up in Jesus' day. Uh, in Hebrew culture, if a son had done the thing that the younger son had done to the father, taken his inheritance and headed off, it'd be sort of like the godfather, you know, you're dead to me now. 
and that son would be forgotten. And if that son was to take the wealth that was part of his estate and waste it, especially if he was going to waste it in a distant land where that money and wealth went over to Gentile people, when that son came home, he would come home to a gathering. The whole community would get together in front of the son, and the father, it was a very visual culture, the father would take a pot in front of the whole community, and he would take this pot and he would smash it on the ground. I thought about smashing it on the ground and then I thought about you guys and I figured uh, I, I better not do that. And he would pick up the broken pieces of the pot to symbolize, son, you've broken our community. You've broken our estate. You've broken our home. You've broken our family. And you've broken my heart. And there's nothing to be done. It can't be put back together. You're cut off forever. And so, of course, then, if the son knows he's coming home to this kind of community gathering, wouldn't you wait as long as you could? It's no wonder that when the son starts thinking about coming home, he starts to put together a business plan of a way that he can make it right. He knows this ceremony's coming, and he starts thinking, is there any way that I could earn my way back? Has that ever happened to you? You ever been the younger son? Felt like what you've done has, is irreparable, it can't be fixed, but maybe you can work your way back to the father? It doesn't work like that. Now, this is a familiar enough story that I wanted to share with you. Um, Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And the first time I read his adaptation of the story, it tore me up. And I wanted to share it with you. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents are a bit old-fashioned. They tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. One day when her father's knocking on the door trying to restore the relationship after an argument, she says those words, I hate you. And that night she acts on a plan that she has mentally rehearsed hundreds of times before. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because the newspapers in Traverse City, they report all the lurid details of the gangs and the drugs and the violence in downtown Detroit. She concludes that her parents will probably never look for her here. California, maybe. Florida, probably. But not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride. He buys her lunch. He arranges a place for her to stay. Gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's felt in a long time. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from the good stuff. And the good stuff continues for a month and two months. The man with the big car, she calls him boss. He teaches her a few things that men like. She's underage and so men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home. But their lives now seem so small and so boring compared to her life in the big city. She can hardly believe she ever grew up back there. 
She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with that headline, have you seen this child? But now she has blonde hair and makeup and body piercings. No one would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends were runaways anyway. After the first year, the signs of sickness appear. And it amazes her how fast her friends turn. Winter blows in and she finds herself sleeping on metal grate outside a big department store. Sleeping's the wrong word for it, though. A teenage girl in downtown Detroit can never let her guard down. Dark circles form around her eyes. Her cough gets worse. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost and cold in a frightening city. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry, and something jolts a little memory. It's a memory of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees blossom at once and her golden retriever running through in between the trees. God, why did I leave, she asked herself. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash more than anything else that she just wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections to the answering machine. She hangs up the first two times without leaving a message, but the third time, she musters up enough courage, and she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way. I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes all the problems with her plan. What if her parents are out of town and didn't get the message? Maybe she should have waited another day. Maybe she should have given them more time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech that she has already for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. I'll do anything. I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Can you forgive me? She says those words over and over again. But she hasn't apologized to anyone in years. Snowflakes hit the pavement. A deer darts by the highway. Every so often she sees a billboard and sometimes a sign counting down the miles to Traverse City. Oh my gosh, she says. When the bus finally rolls into the station, a little voice crackles over the microphone. Fifteen minutes, folks. That's all we have at this stop. Fifteen minutes to decide her life. She pulls out a compact mirror and looks at herself. She smooths her hair, looks at her sunken in cheeks, rubs the lipstick off of her teeth looks at the circles around her eyes, the tobacco stains on her fingertips. She wonders if her parents will even recognize her. She wonders if they're even there. She walks in the terminal not knowing what to expect. She's played a thousand scenes in her head of how this would look, but not one of them is like what she sees. In the concrete wall and plastic chair bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 of her brothers and sisters and great-aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother, too. They're all wearing stupid party hats and making noises with plastic kazoos. <laughs> taped across the back wall is a taped-together sign that says, Welcome home. And in front of that sign, with tears in his eyes and a quivering smile, is her father. And she starts with the speech, and he just puts his finger to her lips. And he says, welcome home.
The first thing I hope we walk away with from this sermon today is it doesn't matter how far you've been. I don't know what your distant country is. But this invitation during Christmas time and actually every day of every year, there's a father who loved his two boys and he just wants them to come home. If that's you today, there's nothing you can do to earn your way back. You don't have to get yourself together to come home. In fact, you can't get yourself together. You need home to help you. Now I want to turn our attention because uh, if I was going to retitle this story from the prodigal son, the first other title I would choose is the two lost sons. Because there were two boys in this story. And even though one of them looks more lost than the other, it's not so. Let's pick the story back up. So the son comes home. The father throws a giant party. Verse 23 of chapter 15. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and says, what's going on? Your brother has come home. And your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Sunday school teacher was once teaching a class the, talking about this story. She told the story of the prodigal son, and then she asked the kids, uh, the prodigal son coming home wasn't good news. Someone wasn't really happy about this. Who was that? And one of the kids raises his hand and says, the fattened calf? <laughs> was, yep, you're right. But I understand the older brother. You know, this story is amazing the way that it plays out. You know, in birth order, we have the, the younger son. And the younger son does what the baby of the family oftentimes does, right? This is the rebellious son, the son that loves the attention, loves wild living, wants to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral, just wants to make sure it's all about him, right? I recognize the younger son, and then there's an older son, and we're going to get into some of the older son's problems. The interesting thing, I'm a middle child. There's no middle child in the story. Do you know why that is? Because middle children are perfect. We don't have the problems the other two do. So if you're a middle child, you can turn out, tune out the rest of the sermon. There's nothing here for you. No, uh, the truth is um, I'm just a combination of the two. I know what it's like to be the younger son. To think that life out there, anything out there is better than life at home. But I understand the older brother too. So we talk about the older brother, we're talking about me. Maybe we're talking about you. Older brother always does the right thing. Always follows the rules. Always works real hard. Interesting thing is... It's a real quick transition. Lots of younger brothers who come home, it doesn't take us very long to turn from younger brothers into older brothers because younger brothers will either become more like the father because of grace or they'll become more like the older brother. Ever happened to you? Doesn't take much for me. I, I, uh, I show generosity one time or I pray consistently for seven days in a row and all of a sudden the older brother mentality comes along. I can't believe these other people who aren't nearly as generous as I am even though it's been one day, right? <laughs> and the younger brother goes to a distant country 
and the older brother is just on the porch of this party. He's five feet away from the celebration, but he's a hundred miles from home. And we see it in his interaction with the father. He hears about this party. How do you imagine that you would react if your long-lost brother had come home? See, the, the older brother wondered if the younger brother would ever come back, but he knew when the younger brother came back, there would be a community gathering and the father would be there, but his father would be holding up these. He didn't expect to hear singing and feasting and celebrating. The older brother became angry, furious, The father has already run out to rescue one son. And now he has one son home and he's now losing the other son. Older brother became angry. He refused to go into the party. So his father once again chose the pathway of humility and walks out on the porch to talk to his son. In fact, he begs him to go in. Respectable dads don't beg their children, but this father does. Because this father loves these boys, both of them. So the boy answered his father. Now, how do, dad, or how do sons uh, answer to their father when they're begging? Now, I grew up in a home where my dad made real sure that we call everybody Mr. and Mrs. When I was young, even if you told me to call you John, if I called you John, there would be a payment when I got home. I was, we talked to adults as Mr. and Mrs. Not so much anymore. But the level of disrespect that this son shows to his father... I can only imagine him taking his index finger and pointing at his dad, and the word that he uses here says, look, which if we translate it means, look, you. All these years that I've been home, I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. I've followed all the rules. And yet you never gave me. You ever hear kids talk like this to their parents? You've never given me anything. That's what this son says to him. You've never given me anything. It's filled with resentment. And then comes a turn in verse 30. He talks about his brother, but he doesn't call him his brother. There's a small shift. He says, when this son of yours... He's not my brother anymore. He's filled with resentment and judgment. He says that he's obeyed every single thing the father's asked him to do while he's standing there disobeying the thing that the father's asking him to do, which is to come into the party. He's filled with resentment. He's filled with judgment. And the problem is he thinks that he's in right standing when he's absolutely in wrong standing with the father, but he doesn't even know it. What a story. And what do you think that the Pharisees and teachers of the law are thinking about when he's telling this story? The father turns to the son and said, My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive, was lost, and now is found. And then don't you want to know what comes next? Right? The younger son comes home. The dad goes out to the brother and says, please come in. 
And then Jesus stops the story. Uh, did he run out of creativity? He's like, I forgot how this ends. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Chapter 16 is in a totally different town telling a totally different story. Why doesn't he finish the story? Because it's a choose-your-own-adventure story. The way that this story ends is up to you. It's up to me. Someone else has to finish this story. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law have a decision to make. There is a celebration going on. Because the younger sons are coming home. What will the older brothers do? I thought about two ways this story could end. Either the elder brother turns away from the father. He could choose that. He goes back into the field. He continues to work in coldness and bitterness of heart, and he never goes into the house again. He follows the rules, and he toes the line, and he probably does get his share of the money and the land, but he will never be at home. And he grows to hate his brother. And that spirit of resentment and judgment and blindness to that, it grows a little stronger and a little darker each year. He grows to hate his brother, and secretly he grows to hate his father. And then he dies. And when he does, he dies angry and bitter and alone. He never had a home with the father, and he never would. Not because of the father, but because of his choice. Or maybe it ends like this. Elder brother fell to his knees and his hard heart was broken. He began to weep before his father. He begged his dad to forgive him and take him back again. And then he went into the house and he saw the skinny and wasted figure of his brother who had lived in famine. And then he remembered how they grew up together and how they played together, and how they fought, and how they worked, and how they loved each other. He remembered how his brother was gone and lost, and that the house was lonely and empty without him. And now he sees that they'll never be apart again, and his heart could have been filled with love. He could have been so glad that his brother didn't get a dropped pot and broken pieces and cut off, and he could celebrate. And he left the porch and he went into the house and he joined the party. And he laughed louder than any other guest and he sang longer than the other guest did and he danced faster than they did and he cried harder than anybody else at the party. And that celebration goes on to this day. How does the story end? I don't know. For you younger brothers, how does it end? I want you to know as clear as I can, you can come back home to God no matter what distant country you've been in, no matter what you've done. According to the Father, the pieces can be put back together. And you don't have to get yourself right to do that. I hope today, if that's you, you would. And if you're like me, and there's a little older brotherism in you, a little bit of resentment, and a little bit of working too hard for it. And a little bit of blindness. The party is not just for the younger brother. The party that the father throws is for both boys. Because that father loves both of these boys. 
Is there anyone you've written off? Someone who you thought was gone and could never make it back? Is there any person or group of people that secretly you go, I I don't hope the best for them. Christmas, you can come home. I heard a story of a woman who watched her father walk away from faith 33 years ago. She prayed for 33 years. When she sensed an open door, she invited her dad to church. After 33 years, she invited him one time, and he came. And at that service, he came back home to the father. She never gave up. Anybody here given up on someone? It's been too long. You tried too many times. Anybody given up on a son or a daughter? Don't give up. Anybody given up on a dad or a mom? A brother, a sister, a coworker, a neighbor, a best friend? I want you to know, in a few weeks, we have an amazing Christmas Eve service plan. We decided to take the service that's kind of traditional uh, and to make space for your and my uh, younger brothers who are wandering and looking for home and older brothers who are wandering and looking for home. Our team's been working already. The service is in, the planning and preparation is in full swing. This is a perfect time for you to pray and to open up your heart and to take a risk and invite one of God's children to come home. You can play a part in that. It's a perfect time to make space for that. Never give up. Um, One last thing I want to do before we close. Um, This year, our leadership has sensed God speaking to us that it's time to ramp up our investment in our youth. Hopefully, the story of two boys coming home makes a connection here for you. You know, our students are growing up in a very different world than we did if you're over the age of 25. Entertainment and media has changed our worlds and theirs in some good ways and others not so. Our average students spend four to six hours a day in front of a screen every day. During that time, they will see 200,000 acts of violence and watch 16,000 reenactments of murder by the time they're 18 years old. If they don't find sexually explicit material online, it will find them. 19% of high school students experience um, bullying, and that number doubles to almost 40% if you include verbal abuse online. Almost 40% experience rejection. Staggering numbers of young people are struggling with depression and anxiety, feeling hopeless and unloved. You know, suicide is the fourth leading cause of death in 10 to 14-year-olds. This year, 150,000 teenagers will go to the hospital for self-inflicted wounds. Are you ready for some good news? There's more potential in this generation of students than we've ever seen. Sometimes hearers talk about the youth or the future of the church. They're not. They're the present. Our youth are bringing their friends, challenging them, growing. It's happening right now, not later. They're bright and they're brilliant and they're talented and they're caring. I have two of them that live in my house. They want to see change in our world. 
We have a terrific staff. Joshua, who is up here hosting, giving the announcements, he's one of our team. We have a terrific youth ministry staff that works hard every single week to build a strong ministry that invites students back home to God and to grow to realize their full kingdom potential. And we have a terrific group of students, a high percentage of them who are involved in student leadership called Student Catalysts here. We have an amazing group of volunteers who give their time to mentor and shepherd and care for and sacrifice for our students. It's a terrific ministry. Just on this side of our building, we invested $800,000 a number of years ago into a terrific facility where our youth could blossom and grow and where we could reach out to the youth that are around in our community. But it's damaged and it needs some help. It needs a fresh investment from us to clean it up and freshen it up and open it up to make space for our youth to flourish and the youth of our community to flourish. It's not our fault that the students are like this. It's not our fault, but it is our time. And we as leadership are asking you if you would make the space in your Christmas budget to invest in the lives of these young people that the kind of generosity that we see from the Father in this story, that would be the kind of generosity that we would have in this story. I say we step up and we get that space open back up for our students to flourish and we just see what God can do through that generation. Get it? Got it? Good. Okay. All right, would you stand to your feet? I'm going to close up in a prayer. I want you to know if you're a younger son, a rebel, you can come home to God. And if you're an older son and you're struggling with resentment, you can come back home to God. We're going to have prayer teams that are up front that would love to pray for you wherever you're coming from. Uh, I'm actually going to invite them to make their way up here now. You don't have to carry that alone. You can get prayed for after the service. Let me say a prayer. Jesus, you're a genius because you tell this story and I see myself in both sons. I've been the younger son. I kicked open the back door to my own home, caused amazing damage. It's been decades trying to rebuild that relationship. And it's because of you that it's happening. No matter what distant country I choose to go to or any of these folks choose to go to, you don't stop waiting at that fence, looking and watching, waiting to see our outline on the horizon, waiting to see that walk the one that you recognize, that's my boy. I pray for your children that are here that we'd come home. Lord, the older brother's not far from me. Would you help me root out resentment? Would you help me open up, open my eyes to my own blindness to the ways that I'm like an older brother? Because, God, to the world of younger brothers outside the church, they think that older brotherism and Christianity are the same thing, and they're not. God, help our church be a home where those two boys can find home. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.